What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase to Must podcast is brought to you by our presenting sponsor, Panko Chicken. The new Atlanta restaurant thrives off of a unique spin on Japanese and Western cuisine and is already racking up the awards, winning best-selling taste in the Taste of Atlanta Awards both in 2017 and 2018. So if you're in the metro Atlanta area and are wanting to try something new and good and delicious, Go to Panko Chicken today and tell them that I sent you over. You'll be glad you did, I promise. Panko Chicken, where eats meets West. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, welcome to another episode of the CT podcast. My guest today, he's here. It's early. It's still daylight outside in Atlanta. Dan Sembrowski. Dan, good evening, sir. I know you haven't gotten much sleep after uh, going down, as we were talking about before we started recording, a Jordan Hicks slash Tommy John surgery history, um, relative uh, recent history um, rabbit hole that you went down uh, last night. So I I know you're tired, but I appreciate you uh, making the effort tonight. Well, see, I see one thing I like to do is talk. I like to be quizzed about things like like some weird, fun baseball interrogation. So I'm always up and it's it's daylight here, too, because we are in the same time zone. That's right. Um, and also you um, it's good that you like being quizzed because you do the fan chat that I read and the man, chats are weird. Great. Yeah, I, I at some point my chat became the weird chat. And I guess some of that's my fault. What? what? Give me an example. What makes it weird now? Well, because, I mean, there's a very large percent of the questions that are about sandwiches or right. chili mm. or cats or okay. weirdly, I get a lot of Venezuela questions. Someone's mad what? at me because I don't like Maduro and they mm. do. Uh, and I don't like to get into politics, but when you get like 20 Venezuela questions, usually one will lure me. Uh so that that's what my chat was most weeks. Lots of chili sandwiches, cats, so on. So uh, I'm gonna have to intervene and make sure you stay on track on these fangrass chats. Yeah, I'm I'm hard I'm hard to keep on. I'll just tell I'll I'll hop in there and I'll be like, excuse me, um, I have a couple questions about why M- Mike Voltnevich should be a closer actually for the Braves, and they should just turn it into their own Jordan Hicks, and then we can get you back on track that way. See what happens is I'll get like a run of questions I don't want to answer because mm. the questions I hate the most in chats is when people ask the the very very specific fantasy question that is only interesting to them. Uh, now mm. I mean not to you know punch someone in the face or anything but when someone says okay i have six players i need to keep four and then it's like six random players none of the other people reading the chat get anything from that so then i'll say okay i gotta Mm. i gotta find something just wacky and then i'll take the next wacky one uh there used to be a lot of nick markakis questions too i think people decided i had some sort of vendetta against nick markakis for some reason which i never quite got but 
I'm usually game on playing along with the insanity, so I guess that's on Racists me, too. are very territorial about him now. He's in that category where they're like, oh, it's because he's been a bargain guy the last two years where it was like, oh, he's uh, we're getting so much bang for our buck. Like, he's the, the super utility guy that has just been, it's like that Brett Gardner zone where I think Yankees fans will love him forever. And it's like, oh, well, he's actually not good anymore. And well, I'd Nick say Mark Gardner Higgins has not. been better than Mark Kinkis, but... Which is a problem, by the way, because, you know, the, the Braves, I mean, if their offense wasn't just, like, just raking right now, it would be a bigger issue. But for Mark Higgins himself, uh, there was a free agent, I seem to recall, that played right field primarily that was available this winter. And the Braves elected to not uh, <laughs> dabble in that. Uh, but see, we, we have to save the crowing about that one mm. until Bryce Harper's having a star season. Because, I mean, he has an 830 OPS. But that's not great right now. I don't care. I want Bryce Harper <laughs> and Acuna for the next ten years. Are you kidding? Yeah, and I they would not gripe, and there would be no, there's no crow eating, even if Bryce Harper never has another actual superstar season. I don't care. He's better than Nick Markakis, and he's better than, I mean, by the time Austin Riley's ready to, for that point, we'll see. But like, no, give me Acuna and Bryce Harper for the next ten years. Yeah, and I, that's and fine I, and I think that there's some sort of like karma that the Braves have to do because they have, you know. Uh, Albies and Acuna f- for like 20 years combined for like what 120 million total yeah. or something. It's There's- a weird thing. I, I when I saw those signings, I'm just like I the Acuna especially, um, where I was just like, this feels like it's awesome, but also feels gross. Like I shouldn't be excited about this because he did this because of the state of, um, just how the the just everything is working with baseball deals right now that they're just scared. And they're just taking the money up front and not going to go into free agency because they just don't know what it's going to look like with a new CBA down the line and a lot of other stuff. And just it doesn't seem like it's um, going to improve anytime soon. Although Acuna, Acuna did better than Albies did. True. I don't know what what Albies As he should, was though. thinking. Uh, but but Acuna actually got something that wasn't laughably bad. Uh, there's going to be a bad picture that's signed this offseason that's going to get more total than than Albies is. I I I don't know what the risk was. I mean uh, I feel like that the Braves could have given could have offered him a little more. I mean, I mean you wouldn't do it if he's not going like if Albie's gonna take it and his agent's gonna take it, then you just do it. You're just like really? It's it's one of those things where you're just like, okay. It just feels like a respect thing though. I mean when yeah. when I've been hired, you know, by ESPN and Fangraphs, they didn't start the bidding by offering me a sandwich. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I like Good sandwiches. I might, if I was hungry, I might have taken the sandwich. Mm. But what they, is your favorite sandwich? Uh, there's so many sandwiches. Really, if you put, I mean, I love, I love jamón ibérico. I love speck. What? Uh, I Are love any words. Yeah, Spanish ham. It's 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 really good. Okay. Uh, and speck is this. Uh, depending on where you get it, it's like North Italian, uh, Southern German. Lunch meat that's that's juniper based. That's like prosciutto. That's really junipery. I'm not sure if you're just messing with. Me. No, I'm serious. It's called speck. It's really good. Speck? I like I like lardo. Okay, now you've no, no, I'm not making up lardo. lardo. Are you kidding? I'm not making up lardo. It's <laughs> it's actually about what it sounds. It's it's they actually take fat back and they cure it with herbs and spices and then they cut it like paper thi- like paper thin. It's really good though, but there's no way in hell I'm ever ordering anything called Lardo. Yeah, they 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 did not think of a a, a market friendly name for the no. And it's really 
it's the same with fat back. It isn't like, <laughs> oh, look, how, you want some fat back or scrapple because scrapple is pretty much what it is. It's just scraps. And then you, you know, it's all fried in a, it's all lumped into this like gray gelatinous cube. Do you have, you have, I don't think you have scrapple that far south, do you? I have, I have no idea what Scrapple is. It sounds like a board game. It's like a Pennsylvania Dutch area thing. And it's all the leftover parts of the pig. Okay, well, kind see, of, I love Bratwurst, which is kind of the same thing, right? Except this, it, it, this isn't packaged as neatly as Bratwurst. See, sausage, mm. it's stuffed into the tube, and, you don't, and they put in lots of spices and stuff. Oh my god, are you about to ruin sausage for me? Please don't do this. Well, you know what sausage is, but... No, but I they, know it was sa- sausage. Nope, kind nope, of no, 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 no. I don't want to know. Don't want to know. Because, sausage is because they say meat. you don't want to go where the sausage is made because sausage tries to hide it. Yes, Scrapple as they should. Scrapple I don't want to know. <laughs> all the parts kind of macerated together into this gray gelatinous cube and sold like that, and you cut off chunks and fry it. Uh, I, I'm not psychologically able to eat Scrapple. But mm. it's huge in the mid-Atlantic area, especially Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Um, Interesting. So I'm never eating any of these things, by the way. Yeah, that, they see. But on the flip side, uh, head cheese and sweet meats those sound a lot better than they are. I mean, sure. Yeah, head, I love that blue cheese like hides what it actually is. Like just calling it blue yeah, cheese, I always no, respected it's, that. It's cheese, but it's it's got some blue in it. Yeah, like it's kind of hiding. It's like, well, why is it blue? It's like, don't worry about that. You know, it, it was your job to keep me on on task. I mean, and, hey, part of the appeal of these <laughs> podcasts, Dan, and part of the reason I like having you on is uh, you never know where we're gonna go, and it's it's fun. Like this is this is part of the Dan Chase podcast experience. Well, we'll we'll see. I people can write in about how they feel about Lardo, and if they have it, then they we can give them some kind of prize. Lardo is good. In about Lardo, please don't. Please, you can go in. <laughs> I just like saying Lardo conversation because it makes you obviously uncomfortable. God, go into the next Fangraphs chat, everyone who's listening, and make sure to ask Dan about all of these different things, and make sure you um, sabotage what could be. A no, and people are going to say no. I've had Lardo and it is delicious. That's what people are going to say. No, they're not. No one's ever had it. I don't believe you. I, I'm still going to look all this up after we're on this podcast because I'm not <laughs> convinced that you're not just messing with it. Me. It's spelled like that too. L-A-R-D-O. Lardo. No, thanks. It's going to be a hard pass for me. Um, speaking of Lardo, the New York Mets. Um, <laughs> that, was a good, that was a good transition. I like that segue. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That's, that's why they pay me the big bucks. It only took 300 episodes to get there. Um, the Mets, Buster only reporting that... Uh, the front office intervening a little bit um, in what's going on with on-field pitching decisions and just um, uh, the, the Brody Van. Uh, how are we pronouncing his name these days? I'm gonna mess it up. Brody Van. Wergen, I, I just Wergen. think of him as Brofist. There you go. Um, speaking of Brofist, I have a. Uh, I, I met someone who used to work very recently in Mets PR, and oh, poor, poor person. Oh I God. feel very sorry for them. Imagine being Mets PR. I mean, that's, it, uh, that, not great. Are, they, are there horror stories? Or a lot of them. The, it, it's not even just like horror stories. It didn't like it. It's uh, I don't know because it seems like it, when you're working in that building and everything else is still just cool. You get to work in an MLB front and office, and you get to see a lot of cool people. And it's just I think it's really stressful um, at times. But the the funny thing was I obviously asked about um, Young Will Pond. 
Um, I was gonna mix up. Which one's Jeff and which one's Fred? Jeffy's the Jeffy's the little one. Fred's the older one. Okay, yeah, Jeff. See the the, he, the um, way you remember it is that no one's really been named Fred for like eighty years. That's true. That's true. Um, well, Jeff, he uh, apparently has a propensity to wear like um, what were the douchey t-shirts from like the mid two thousands? That was like Jersey Shore stuff. That like. Was it Ed Hardy? It was something yeah. They like had that. Ed Hardy had all the the graphics and right. John so Gosling would wear some kind of he he would wear some kind of shirt like that. Like he dressed exactly like you would expect Jeff Wilpon to dress in the office and walk around. And you're, I I just had this visual of him just painting like what Jeff was like in the office. And he uh, did he pair it with did, not... did Jeff pair it with Zubaz? There you go. <laughs> that that see you have to have the bright Ed Hardy graphics. And then the bold stripes of the Zubaz. It's, um, yeah, it's, that's fashion uh, forward. That's what, oh God, it's, it's wild. But, um, yeah, so they're in a state of dysfunction right now. They're, uh, there's a lot going on here, but let's, let's first, I want to ask you because you're more plugged in than me and on this front, but I think we kind of are overblowing, um, the front office getting involved with in-game tactics because i think if you polled around the league and tell me if i'm wrong here but i would actually venture to guess with just how mlb front offices work and like you had the marlins a couple years ago where the gm went to the bench and all that kind of stuff where i think it happens a lot more than we figure out but because it's the mets it's funny and it's just like (laughs) classic mets but if you were to tell me like a third of the league's front offices and gms were like doing in-game stuff like this and like calling their managers and having that much pull over them like that would not surprise me at all it's 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 really not so much in game though there's a lot of you know front office direction of things generally but it's mostly done like in a preparatory fashion it's not really done in the middle of the game like that but would you be surprised if aj preller was texting green i wouldn't be shocked but it's it's probably done in a less douchey way uh right than brofist but uh i mean there's also such stories uh I mean, that's one of the reasons that uh, Girardi uh, did not stay with the Yankees, that Cashman did not want him back, is the long, long, pretty good rumor is that the the analytics office of the Yankees would prepare all these nice, huge reports for him to use, and he never wanted to use any of them. He just wouldn't ignore them completely, and so it was always frustrating for the front office uh, to to not be on the same wavelength and they 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 could they feel they have that with aaron boone uh even if it's something you don't obviously see in game uh but i i think I that have that because they didn't hire brody didn't hire mickey and there's some obvious weird disconnect there but yeah I, yeah I but you see he doesn't really want to fire mickey yet because he just they just fired dave island and he only has so many scapegoats he can fire <laughs> before he's the next one if you fire your pitching coach and your manager like a week apart. There's no one. You're the next one that they're going to point to. They're not going to blame the bench coach if you finish 74 and 88. Uh, so you you kind of want to keep Callaway around. Uh, if, you, if you're playing, you know, the whole Machiavellian game, you you keep him. Yeah, you so you can be as cynical can, as humanly possible. <laughs> you, you keep him so that you can destroy him later at the proper time. Exactly. Um, and that's why he's so stressed and he's yelling at reporters because Okay, I'm glad you got it. He knows this is, yeah. he knows he's the patsy. He knows that that 
he's like one of those secondary characters in Game of Thrones where mm-hmm. he knows that he's not one of the main characters, so his chances of surviving are even worse. Oh, he, you know what he is? He's Rob Stark. Or like, Rob if you did because he thought he was the main character, he yeah, was the hero coming into Gotham, and it's like, oh, you know, you didn't actually have chapters in the book. Yeah, you you were not, you a, were not a viewpoint character. This is not gonna <laughs> well for you. You're slightly more relevant than Rickon, who brutal. Yeah, I mean, on the TV show, they pretty much forgot about Rickon after he was dead. Mm-hmm. Did you ever notice that all the Stark siblings got home? They never really asked. Hey, where's the little brother? <laughs> what happened to Rickon? Like, don't worry. All the important Starks are alive. Yeah, we were all far more concerned with um, the ghost Jon Snow interactions that we'd just forgotten about. Wait, why don't they give a shit about Rickon? Yeah, it's like, oh, he didn't pet He didn't pet ghosts. Like, nobody mentioned, like, there's... Nobody this... mourned Rickon. Yeah, where's the eight-year-old? <laughs> but he's, like, four in the book still, so, um, to be fair, he's still insane. But they just last for the... They, Asking where the four-year-old would still be a very legitimate question. <laughs> That's true. All the important Starks are here. We have we have Sansa and Arya, and, and we have Jon Snow, and and the others. Well, they were that other one expendable Starks. Mm-hmm. Well, Rickon and Rob. God, yeah, it's it's a great way of looking at this. Bad news for Mickey Calloway, but um, so yeah, he, the he's he's the he... Rickon Stark of the Mets. There you go. Um, the incident in question. So, w- w- what we're talking about, if you did not already know what's going on with the the message, yeah, it's if, been like if, nineteen if different someone, things that have happened. Yeah, if you didn't know what was going on, you might be very confused at this point. So, Tim Healy, uh, a writer for Newsday, Mets beat writer, um, he was verbally berated. I shouldn't be laughing at this, but he was verbally berated by Callaway, and then physically threatened by Jason Vargas, and Brody, like, and the Mets played it off of it, like. Uh, it, we're not supporting it, but here's the $10,000 fine and no one's getting suspended for like one going at him verbally and the other one physically threatening to beat up a reporter for just asking questions following a loss to the Cubs um, uh, at Wrigley Field. And I, <laughs> okay. I, it just like, this yeah, it's, is something it's pro- that went it, under the radar kind of. It's, it's probably not going to save your season. Uh, I mean, it's not like, Tim Healy's some notable like jerk ass reporter. I mean, you can understand a manager flipping out or a player flipping out, say if it was me or or Dan Shaughnessy or someone like that. Mm-hmm. Uh but or the KC radio guy from this week. <laughs> yeah. Uh I but yeah, it it's it's not good management because in the end I mean, journalists are going to get over it because they know that if you they're not actually going to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if someone punched me, I mean, I'd be like, wow, this is an awesome story. I'm going to go. I'm going to get lots of radio this week. Wait, that's where you go. You don't go. This is going to be an amazing lawsuit. I think I can retire. No, I no, I would. I would. I would be entertained by it. Like, okay. When Murray Chess devoted a whole call. Oh, not a column, a whole blog entry to me calling me the digital dandy and the name of shame in the hall of fame. I, that was so much fun for me. I like, I like talked about that for a week. That was the same week I got into the baseball writers association. So like that was the highlight of my week him making fun of me. Uh, my mom always jokes to me and I don't even think she's joking. Is she, she wonders why nobody's ever beaten me up. Uh, that she says that that's that befuddles her. Uh, Interesting. Like, Thanks mom. But, <laughs> I think my I mean my parents said that I think we're on the same same wavelength there. 
Yeah, but I, I, I can understand because you know I'm I'm a little mouthy at, at times, so I can understand if it was if it was me if I had made a sarcastic comment. Um, see, I'm I'm lucky though because I'm not a beat writer, so I don't really need to get quotes as often as say a someone who's more of a reporter does, mm-hmm. which is probably merciful because I've said some things. I mean, it's it's a bad week for New York sports teams in that regard because you have the Daily News getting banned from a press conference by James Dolan, and then you have the Mets um, just kind of yaddying um, a reporter almost getting beaten up or a, a just a, ostensibly going to get attacked from Vargas depending on whether or not he's going to follow through, which, as we both know, is not going to happen. But uh, Mickey Callaway obviously letting it get to him, like all of this, but I'm – like going back to what we were talking about, it's like you're a puppet, dude. Like this is. Do you think you're here? Like, why do you want this job still? Like, he's. Uh, it sucks because the guy who hired him is gone. But, um, I don't know. Like, why? I guess it's the money. It's a pretty good gig. You're coaching one of the two New York baseball teams, which is pretty awesome. Uh, then again, you're working for the Wilpons, so probably not as awesome. So I don't. I don't know. Like, what? What do you do if you're Mickey Callaway? It, it seems like he's just like he knows. He's in a bad situation, and it's finally just coming to the surface, and he just can't hold in all, uh, just a couple of years of just turmoil. And it makes me appreciate Terry Collins more for just being able to do this year after year and just be perfectly normal about it. Like, uh, I, I don't know. It's, it's pretty wild yeah. that Terry Collins was able to make it as long as he did. Yeah, it does. I mean, Collins was old school, but he... He, he, he's used to this crap. It, it didn't really bother him that much. He just was him. Uh, I, I, I can't claim any specific, you know, knowledge of how Callaway feels, uh, but it, it has to be stressful. I mean, this, this as a manager was his first break as a manager. So it's hard for him to just, you know, walk away. I mean, Terry Collins could have walked away at any time, just fine. And I don't think well, he welcome to the resistance. Terry Collins, as <laughs> he said, Mickey Callaway needs to respect the media. Yeah, because the media isn't going to go away. Uh, and baseball writers association writers are definitely not going to go away. Uh, they can't actually kick us out without cause. Uh, they'd actually have problems if, if they well, tried cause look. I hate you. I could see that. Uh... No, like cause like getting autographs or something. They, they're obviously for, for good reason, very strict about that. Um, mm. but, uh, the Mets have tried to do it before. Um, I don't know if you know Howard Megdahl, but, he was yes. critical of the Mets some years ago, and they played games with his uh, credentials because he was not in the Baseball Writers Association. Uh, so there's mm-hmm. always a chance. There's always that worry in the back for, for any writer that they're going to lose access. And that's probably worse for a journalist, especially a reporter. I could survive better than a beat writer could without access. Mm-hmm. Um, to lose that access is probably worse than getting punched. Yeah, um, I I don't know. Well, there the good news is there's a little bit of positives in Metland, and I think we should touch on that before we have any more Mets fans just driving off the bridge right now. No, no, no. no the Mets fans are used to it because yeah. if you look at the fan base, Mets fans are very pessimistic at all times. They are the glass half empty people, or the glass is made of poison. And they were in the World Series die. four years ago. Yeah, but. It, there's just something in the blood by being a Mets fan where you're just eternally just ready to self-immolate about things that the Mets do. Uh, you, Shout the, out to David Ross columns. The, the, Mets, the Mets get in your blood and not like a good thing like antibodies. 
No, they're the exact opposite. Are you saying they're uh, <laughs> a virus? Yeah, is that what is the that Mets what virus? Saying? I caught a case of the Mets. Um, <laughs> that, that, but that doesn't even sound like a weird thing to say. No, like no, significantly like, less weird than Lardo. Like on the on the on the Wonder Years, there was that episode where Kevin was the Wonder che- Years. How old do you think I am? Well, I I have to how. Oh, I guess the Wonder Years. Was that even on when I was growing up? Yeah. Let me here. I'm I'm I am on the internet. I will find what year it ended. It ended like ninety three. I think it, I think you're thinking okay. of nineteen seventy. Okay, you were you were five when it ended. There's no way that show was going on in nineteen ninety six. Nineteen eighty eight. Oh wait, what what year is this? This is two thousand nineteen. It went from nineteen eighty eight to nineteen ninety three. I was two. Yeah, okay, you were two. Okay. There you go. But you but it's only a you're aware of Seinfeld, aren't you? I have. Um, this is going to get me in trouble. I've only watched like one or two flips oh, of Seinfeld. Okay. Have, have you seen The Simpsons before? One episode didn't like it. Oh, God. <laughs> How do you hang up angry on a podcast? Because <laughs> with an old timey phone, you could slam it down and the person <laughs> on the other side would know that why they're hanging up on. I've mm-hmm. tried to hang up. It's like trying to hang up with people <laughs> on a cell phone. I've tried to do that at first, and people think you're disconnected. Mm-hmm. So I actually have a policy where I tell people that if I'm hanging up on you, I will make sure to shout in loud expletive first so that you know I'm hanging up on you. Okay. Uh, I, I think a good service that phone companies should have is like a button that when you do it, it turns it ends the call, but it sends the loud sound of a phone smashing down to the other person. I can make it up to you because I loved – the other savage, the not Boy Meets World one, who's from the Wonder Years. He ben is, Savage? Yes. He, sure. Yeah. If that's what his first name is, I believe you. Um, he was great on The Grinder, which only got one season that bummed me out because I love that show. That show cracked me. It was like the closest thing we've had to like Arrested Development in 10 years. And Now, now were you old enough for Boy Meets World at least? Yes. Okay, so good. Not, like, a billion times, yeah. Okay, because you're not that much younger than me. I'm 41. It's 13 years. That's not that big. That's it would, gigantic. You're basically. Um, it I mean, would be odd. People would. The the difference is is if I said that you were my son, if people would be a little questioning that math and they give, would. You, give you a side eye. That means that it's not that far apart. Mm. If it was like 19 years, it becomes more plausible. It's it's not. You're not my as, dad. <laughs> no, I'm not. How do we get you're gonna here? like you're gonna like the music that I like. You're gonna watch The Simpsons and enjoy it. You're not gonna listen to that damn music. God, that yeah, rock and I, roll. I think I've I've seen every episode of American Dad, and I've never seen anything past like one episode of The Simpsons. Like, yeah, I yeah that it just blows my mind because I don't not like that, it. I just don't get it. I don't know. Maybe it was a cultural moment, and you had to be there. It's uh, it's very possible. That is that is very possible. Um, so this is a great way of bringing us back to the positive <laughs> Mets stuff. Um, Peter Alonzo is hitting a lot of dingers. Pete, call him Pete. The Adventures no, of Pete and Pete. No, he's. Were Peter. you old enough for that? I have no idea what you're talking about. Ugh. Oh come on! <laughs> this is getting worse for you. Just keep throwing. Yeah, stuff this is getting worse like, for me. I'm getting older as this, as this goes on. I know. Oh, and, okay. Hey, I'm not even like throwing these softballs towards it. You're just you're you're jumping out in front of traffic and like let me see if I can make myself feel even older. Yeah, this was this was 93 to 96 though, so it's not. Mm. 
I believe you. But it was on um, Nickelodeon, still- so it's it, it wasn't like for like adults. I was a Disney kid. Okay. Like Disney Channel original movies were like my jam, Brink, Johnny Tsunami, all that kind of stuff. Um, never really watched Nick growing up. No Rugrats, no. But see, now I'm that. now I'm going to be worried that I'm going to mention like Aladdin or something, and you will not have seen that either. I saw Aladdin. Okay, good. Mm-hmm. I saw Aladdin. I was a big Power Rangers kid. I grew up like that was the go first movie go I Power Rangers. I was yeah, a little too old for it, but I was aware. That was my jam. Yeah. Like I was a, I feel like I was a ranger for like four of the first six Halloweens of my life. Uh, what about Captain Planet? Were you old enough for Captain Planet? No. Okay, that that. I grew up in a Christian conservative household. Captain Planet. But no, they uh, Captain Planet. I'm just joking. <laughs> the thing about Captain Planet is y- y- they they gave the kid each one of these kids these environmental kids this you know united colors of benetton rainbow of kids they gave him each like a special elemental power you know wind fire earth but they gave this one sad kid heart and i always felt sad for that kid like the other guy has like the power of fire and this kid has the power of heart i believe you well you didn't believe me about the lardo that's true i still don't believe you on that um is he an all-star do you think he's an all-star? Oh, Alonzo? Yeah, he should be. He's going to... Okay. He might hit 50 home runs this year. I think he's going to clear 45, and... Well, let's go through some of his stuff. So, he oh, okay. leads all National let's... League first baseman in FR, WRC+, slugging, home runs, and RBIs, and he's only behind Josh Bell and Freddie Freeman in OPS. Do, do people actually say FR? Because I always say Fangraphs war or for... No, I just say FR. Oh, okay. Maybe in my head, it's because I never actually say it out loud. It's just things I read every day. So... In my head, it's just like wait, like the ec- like uh, some of that stuff, and this is part of the annoyance and um, just the statistics in general. It's like I read it and then I'd never hear how people say it out loud, so I'm just guessing what people. Babbit. Yeah, I. That's what I say. What I say? I actually pronounce the things. I'll actually say batting average on balls in play. Oh no! I, who has time for that? That's the I, whole point of the acronyms. Well, it's you could you could consider it like a filibustering thing. I can I can fill up lots of time by. By saying the entire acronym. No. No. And I also like saying BABIP and VORP. And VORP is good, but no one really uses VORP anymore. That's true. Um, uh, user. Yeah, here's the thing. VORP is kind of a 90s thing. Is it? Yeah. Totally is. Because okay. Keith Woolner started working for the Indians pretty early in the millennium. So, mm. So I think you're secretly older than you are. Nope. And, and you're just trying to make me feel bad. No, you're not getting out of this. You're just, you're, you're old, man. Ah, damn it. Yeah. It, it, time flies. And, uh, yeah, it does. Cool. I mean, I've, I've looked at the actuarial chart and I'm actually in the second half, which is kind of depressing. Are you? Yeah. yeah. At 41. Well, you're like right there in the middle. You're right there. Yeah. I passed from the first half to the second half very recently. Now it's like, you're 41 and you have like 39.8 years or something. You're like, God damn it. I mean, uh, hey, that's kind of exciting. You're starting the new era. The, the, the second But it's half. the bad era. It's the era you die in. <laughs> it's the worst era. <laughs> I mean, no one likes the episode where their favorite characters die. You're certainly not going to like the episode where you die. Worst oh episode God. ever. 
I, I tried to make sell that, and you're just like, no, that's the one you die. I don't know how you're gonna beat that. Like the well, first I'm, half, you you make it through. Yeah, but it's 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 it, it's it has to be that way because I survived the first half, and there's only two halves, and you're gonna hey, die man. in one of them. So that's true. That's true. Um, is there a chance for? thirds and you're only in the first you just, you've done a third two thirds maybe I, I i don't know i i don't know if i a hundred doesn't help anything by the way i'm trying years. to break it up into more like uh, I, there's now if now if we had that you know the whole singularity and i can have like my brain put in a killer robot that would be pretty sweet and i could go for that but mm. but my flesh like, thing yeah I, I could do i could do that um but I need to bring my pets with me because that was a really sad episode. Mm. Oh, the dog? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a sad episode. See, I watched Futurama. Futurama's the, good. Did you say that wasn't a sad episode? I said it was. Oh, okay. No. I was going to say, what kind of man are you if, if <laughs> you say, oh, his dog died and waited for him? <laughs> Whatever. Stupid no, dog. Dog just <laughs> knew what was going on. Some idiot. Um. Yeah, no. Worst dog episode. ever. Eight out of ten. <laughs> well, it'd be like a two out of ten. Eight out of ten is a pretty good dog. Well, no, dogs never get rated like below like a six. That's true. Have you seen re-rate dogs? I mean, they're all like twelves and thirteens out of ten. I think that like if a dog was actually Hitler, the dog would still get like a four or a five because dogs are good dogs. And you and give bad them some points of like, how did he like put up with that? Yeah, but but uh, I guess we're still on Peter Alon- Pete Alonso. No, that was actually a seamless transition into Marcus Stroman, Stroman. Um, who wants to be who wants to be a Yankee and is actively um, tampering <laughs> <laughs> in his quotes. Where if you're like the Blue Jays, like I love the difference between like baseball and basketball and certain sports on this kind of stuff. Where it's like, oh, this is weird. Like he's just openly like. No, here's a direct quote. Obviously, I'm on the Blue Jays. And lo- I-, I love it when it starts off with, obviously, I'm on the Blue Jays. <laughs> that's, but- like, that's, like one, that's like the baseball player equivalent of like when someone says, I'm not racist, but... And right. They- <laughs> You're like, okay, now get to it. Obviously, I love my team, but... <laughs> obviously, this is the team I'm on, but... Yeah. I try to keep that in the back of my head because, obviously, you hear rumors all the time. I'm from New York, and I'm a New York boy. That kind of says everything for itself, which is, I want to be in New York and not in Toronto. But I also, hey, I'm obviously on the Blue Jays. (laughs) Well, I mean, if he could drum up some interest from the Yankees, I mean, the Blue Jays, I mean, are pretty much going to have to trade him. I mean, there's no real purpose for them hanging on to him at this point. Maybe he could do the work and then – because, you know, if the players make the trades for you, that, that makes things a lot easier. You can say, oh, I can – Well, it hurts can... leverage where it's like, why do we want to trade for this guy? Because you've only got him on the books for next year, right? And that his last year before his deal's up? Uh, yes. Last, after next year, he I believe is a free agent because he's, he's not on a long term. He's going year to year. Uh, mm-hmm. He has a one-year deal, I believe. So, yeah, I think that – I mean – Injury is a risk, and when you hang on to a picture too long, you can sometimes lose value considerably. You look at the A's with Sonny Gray. You look at the Padres with Tyson Ross. There's, it's very, very risky. When, when a picture is healthy and pitching well, that's usually the best time to move them if you're ever going to move them. You don't want to – it's not it, – it, it, pictures age like sandwiches. You don't want to 
Uh, see, I, I tied everything in. There you go. Um, I, I, I think the problem is that the Mets, I mean, not the Mets, we have the Mets in mind. The Yankees aren't really inclined to giving up lots of prospects unless they really, really need a player. And, and I wouldn't give up Frazier for Stroman. Yeah, I don't think that the Yankees would. I think they would prefer to hang on to him and maybe trade, make a larger trade in the offseason, uh, a package to bring in someone who's a bigger one. Because Stroman's good, but the 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 the, the large, largest crisis for the Yankees rotation, you know, when Severino was suddenly injured and Sabathia wasn't back yet, uh, I think that kind of crisis is 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 mostly behind them. I think mm-hmm. now now let's say that we get some additional Severino bad news. Uh then maybe the Yankees start to look at it, but I, I think they might even go bigger than Stroman, someone who they can keep for a while. Like what if the Nationals fall out of the playoff race, which even though they've been playing better ball, it's perfect it's perfectly possible. Max Scherzer becomes the target. And if you have a choice between going all in for Marcus Stroman and going all in for Max Scherzer or Steven Strasburg, even you're going to go after the Nats pictures. Now, I, I, it's not exactly the scenario we're in quite yet, but I don't think the Yankees are desperate to make a move. I think, I think, and I think they think that they're in a strong position in the AL East. They're up by five games as we talk about this. They've survived a great deal of injuries pretty well. And they can look at the team being better than it's had because they have reinforcements coming in. I, I That's not a team that's prepared to give a huge package for Marcus Stroman. Uh, so I don't think... Who would you guess has a higher probability on Fangraphs to make playoffs right now? Nationals or Phillies? Oh, I, I was like, who on Fangraphs has to possibly make the playoffs? Uh, mm-hmm. Jake Jaffe? But no... It's uh, possible. Uh, I, I think that the Phillies probably... No, Nationals, 50%. Oh, 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 20. I thought you were asking which of the, no, I didn't understand. No, yeah, I have the Nationals as the better team. Uh, I know my projections had the Nationals as the best team coming into uh, the season. and Because they have the best one-two punch. I mean, Strasburg and Scherzer have been incredible this year. And yeah. They're wasting and, that. And adding and, Corbin was, of course, huge. I love Corbin. Right. Um, Corbin Dallas multi-pass. Um, that's why they should have signed Dallas Keuchel. Sanchez as 2018, but um... yeah, they they kind of they kind of banked a little too much. I mean, yeah, they had that good front free front three, and then they said, "Let's." I'm sure that that Anibal Sanchez will work out, and and you know, Jeremy Hellickson, he'll probably work out. So oh, speaking of Jeremy Hellickson, who would you guess is his number one, or I should say, Stroman's number one similarity score through? this point in his career on baseball reference well is it hellickson since that it's hellickson be... see i i figured i saw what you were doing there the host can't afford to be quite as random as me that's true that's true um no it's actually him and james shields oh big game james uh who's mm-hmm. not playing anymore it looks like i just don't know if i would trade a lot of prospect capital for jeremy hellickson or james shields well it's fun to trade james shields if you can get fernando tatis jr out of it <laughs> in in, in, in fairness that trade ended up much worse than you would have expected on average uh he was he wasn't an advanced prospect at that point that's true. and the white Sox had a a kind of a short window that they were looking at so it looks super bad now but i don't think it was quite 
as horrible as it turned out to be. So can you explain something with Stroman, though, with his BABIP? Because he's got a 289 BABIP, high ground ball rate. Is that sustainable? Is that just how he's going to pitch for the next couple of years? Does that still work in New York? Like, if he was to get traded to a team like that, would his style mesh anywhere? Uh, I, I think it would. Uh, I think the bigger question is that he's not usually that good. Uh, I, I think he's going to be about average. He's he's not someone who's like a knuckleball pitcher who's going to have a low BABIP. He's not someone who's barely a major leaguer who will probably have a much higher one than an average. I think that you could expect long-term, you know, 290, 295, 300, like most pictures. Uh, there's nothing particular in his repertoire, uh, like, say, Marco Estrada, when Estrada was kind of good for a while. I, I think that he'll, I think his, his ERA and his FIP aren't that far apart for his career, and I think they'll probably stay that way. Interesting. Yeah, and then the stuff in Atlanta has just been like, oh, it's gonna be Stroman or Bumgarner is the trick. Like, if the Braves have to give up, I don't know. I don't think probably... I don't think they do it. I think that Keiko was their big pitching move. I don't think they can do. Tehran's done. Like, I I think they're just imploding. Fulton Evich, I don't think is a starter anymore. I mean, if you go up now, they just recalled Kyle Wright. Like, I don't think Keiko can be enough. I mean, not necessarily it should be, but I don't think that they're going to make two big trades. I think they're going to hope something else works out. And the thing is, they're not feeling the heat. Kind of like we're talking about the Yankees not really feeling heat. They're not really feeling heat right now in their division either. Uh, the Phillies, right. I don't think, have scored in like three weeks. Uh, the Mets are the, well, the Mets. It's just like, I'm just waiting. I'm not right. I'm not ruling out the Phillies. The team that traded for Real Muto, traded for Segura, tr- uh, signed Bryce Harper. Like, I just refuse to believe that they're not going to continue doing bold stuff. Like, I think they're going to do something this summer that pushes them back into the favorite category. It just, I would be floored if they don't do something drastic. I, I think that they'll actually be bigger in the offseason, but who knows? Mm. We, you, you, can, you can tell me to eat crow or, you know, eat lardo in a few months. Okay. I, I will gladly do that. <laughs> um, well, the last thing I want to talk about quickly here um, Cardinals, it sucks. Their bullpen's finally starting to get back on track. Jordan Hicks throws. Um, according to, from your piece, um, on fancrass.com that I should, should read, uh, he's going to have Tommy John, obviously, and you went down this rabbit hole that we're going to talk about in a second, but he, of the hundred hardest thrown pitches in 2019, 94 were thrown by Jordan Hicks. Yeah. He throws hard. Um, I mean, you have some that are going over 104 and that's, I mean, pitchers throw harder than they used to, but that's on freak level. I mean, 104, that's, that's fast. It's quite fast, and he's going to be gone. But like, so yeah, unfortunately. So tell me a little bit. I mean, I read the piece, but um, my biggest nugget um, that you found was the hardest throwing pitchers. And this is Dan. I'm quoting you. You're going to listen to your own writing oh. podcast right now. The hardest throwing pitchers tend to be, in broad terms, younger and better pitches pitchers overall. Um, more at eleven there, folks. Uh, so they also have a tendency to survive long enough to need surgery, which made sense. I, it wasn't something I, I thought about at the time of just like, oh, that's why guys. It's like, yeah, they've been good, and the longer you pitch, the more likely you are to blow out your elbow or whatever. And though uh, the the trend line is there, it's not particularly strong. Logistic regression doesn't indicate a very robust relationship based on velocity. It's just not a strong causative. 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 causative? causative no i'm gonna go with causative um boogeyman probably causal is probably better but it was like 5 a.m mm. but anyway so this is what you found so what did you ultimately 
find for the listeners that have not yet read the piece on the relationship between Tommy John and hard throwing pitchers like Jordan Hicks. Well, which which backs up previous research is that there is a slight tendency for for pitchers that throw harder to be slightly more likely to have Tommy John surgery, but it's not really something that is a large enough effect that it changes how you react to players. You don't turn Jordan Hicks into a 95 mile per hour or 91 mile per hour guy to save him from possible Tommy John surgery. Uh, one, one effect in one of the studies I linked uh, was that there's actually a stronger relationship between percentage of fastballs that pitchers throw and Tommy John surgery. But even then it's not a super, it's not, it's not the strongest relationship that, that you can find by any means. Uh, I think that the takeaway is that the biggest risk factor to Tommy John surgery is being a pitcher. So it's, you probably don't need to bellyache much about whether the guy throws fast or if he throws too many sliders, everybody's going to get hurt. That's kind of depressing, but it's, that's, that's the case because you, you, in a lot of the studies and, and my little one last night that I was doing while I was just working on the article, getting the data up to date is, I mean, there's no tendency. I found zero relationship between the percentage of sliders, uh, a, a, a picture throws or a velocity of the slider or any kind of pitch and Tommy John surgery. It's just something that's happens. Yeah. Jordan Hicks throws up, you know, 104 miles per hour and had Tommy John surgery, but there are a lot of guys that do not throw 104 or 94 or 90 that have had Tommy John surgery. Like I think of Bruce Chen who had Tommy John surgery and I don't think he threw 94 kilometers an hour. (laughs) That's probably a little mean. That's probably a little too mean, but I don't think, I ever thought I would talk about Bruce Chin on this podcast. Well, didn't do, think that ever. Do you want to talk about some Dallas Perez too? What's he up to? I don't know. Uh, Jose Lima. How old is he? Dallas Perez is he forty yet? Adalis yeah, Perez. he's he actually turned forty. He's actually eight days older than me. There's no way. He's is that it? he turned forty one. You know, John Garland is still in his thirties. <laughs> oh, Dallas Perez is forty two years old. That's insane. How much is um, no, he's forty-one. I didn't turn forty-two. I turned forty-one. You're 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 premature. You're, you're prematurely aging me. And Oliver Perez, thirty-seven. Yeah, it's surprising he's been around so long because you you think about like memories of Oliver Perez. Do any of them involve Oliver Perez being good? No, he's just it, he, he it's just like he's it's like he's bad, Francis but he's left-handed. Bit? Yeah, there's um, some Jeff Francis stuff there. I I, t- I tend to think of Oliver Perez as as Jason kind of uh, uh uh no see you got me out of my thing now I can't remember the player's name because I was distracted see what you Number did Bailey no the uh the lefty that the Giants had forever the the, 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 the no. no the loogie I can't remember his name oh Barry Zito no no he was <laughs> Barry Zito wasn't loogie he didn't get anybody out uh. <laughs> uh Name forgetting. Okay, um, we'll keep talking while I sit here and try to think of the name. I'm looking up every giant. Javier Lopez. I couldn't think of his oh, name. Oh yes, yeah. He lasted forever without ever really being great. He just, he just was left-handed and would usually get those guys out, and that's pretty much. How it. is he the same age as Odalis Perez? Javier Lopez is older than Odalis Perez. No, he's 41. Odalis is 42. Well, but Javier Lopez hasn't. 
was was born in July of 77. So he goes over that artificial July 1st date. He's like 11 months older than. Than who? Odalis Perez. Odalis Perez is 42. He turned 42 on June 11th. Hold on. Let's see what. Well, baseball reference has him at June 11, 1978. No, I have June 11, 1977 on Wikipedia. Do you trust Wikipedia or a friggin' baseball reference? Look, if I, I trusted can, ba- I baseball change... reference or places like Fangraphs over places like Wikipedia, I. You know, I could change Wikipedia in about five minutes and Adalas Perez would be born in 1812. Mm, then you might get banned from Wikipedia forever. Well, it would be worth it. Uh, I didn't participate in it, but I kind of helped accidentally people uh, vandalizing Wikipedia during the All-Star game, during Jeter's last All-Star game, uh, because I think it was C- CBS had the All-Star game then, I, but they, they advertised him as Michael Jeter's game, so I told Twitter to that they should update Michael Jeter's webpage to indicate his All-Star MVP. Mm. Uh, Jeter, of course, was on Evening Shade and on Sesame Street. And was not Derek Cheater. Gary Sheffield? Only 33. No, that is a lie. <laughs> because he came up, what, 1989, 1988? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean Derek Cheater's been 42 his entire life. No, but if Gary Sheffield was 33, I think he would have had to be in the majors when he was like two. Mm. And that's, you can't sign players until they're 16. And two year olds don't, I don't, they don't make good players. They, I mean, they have small strike zones, like Eddie Gadel. But how does the commissioner get away with that? Because how many industries have a law, have essentially a rule that says no little people? Because Eddie Gadel was banned essentially, so baseball has banned little people. Damn it, Dan. And I think babies count as little people for this purpose. Wow. I, I think you're on to something. I think this is your next Fangrass piece. <laughs> why can't little people play baseball? Because you think you about do. it, why can't why that that's always bothered me. Why can't Eddie Gadel play? Maybe that means you should have like static strike zones instead of related to, you know, from the top of the belt to the guest of the letters down to the, the hoops of the stirrups, you know, the the way the strike zone is described. It's it's it's, it's happening right now. Because, like, in the NBA, they don't have larger baskets for larger players. Uh-huh. They don't say, like, you know, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, you can't shoot free throws, so we get we, we bring in the, the hoop that's, like, five times the circumference. They don't do that. Damn it. Dan, I have no idea. Uh, <laughs> wow. What a way to wrap up this podcast. It was a great way of... We hit up and put it in a bow on the Jordan Hicks conversation by talking about why babies can't uh, <laughs> play baseball in the major leagues. So that, a natural ending to this, to this very baseball centric podcast that we did tonight. I, I think we, we, we hit all the po- points we were supposed to. That's true. We did. Well, uh, read Dan's piece on fangrafts.com. It's a very good piece. And uh, look, at, is there anything else that you have coming out this week that we need to check out? Uh, I'm still deciding. It it depends on news. It it gets a little slow this period, like right before the All-Star game, because you have the July 4th holiday and then you have the All-Star game. And then you then you have the the big run up to the trade deadline. 
Uh, so it's probably not going to be the busiest week for me, but I'll see what I'm up to. See what makes okay. me angry because anger is a, is, a, is a good motivator for me. There you go. Sounds healthy. Dan, thanks so much. Talk to you soon. <laughs> thanks for having me on as always. back on the chase thomas podcast and now i am joined by mike perea of fox sports longtime official rules analyst mike good evening sir how are you doing chase i'm doing great um actually up in the great state of oregon did a little fishing today uh, gonna do that a couple more days here maybe even play around the golf in this beautiful state so uh i gotta say things are really good right now but you're a Northern California guy, right? I'm a Sacramento. I live in Sacramento now. Um, I was born in Stockton, which is about 45 miles from Sacramento. I went to school at Santa Clara in Northern California and lived there for a while. And so other than my 12-year stint basically in New York when I was uh, head of officiating for the NFL, um, I've basically been a California guy. So is it, um, are you, it sounds like you're happy based on what we were talking about before Uh, we got started of not being in New York and being in the uh, Northwest and doing some trout fishing and just kind of being away from everything. Well, it's my time of year right now that I can do that. Um, It's the the Fox job is a, is a tedious job. It's not necessarily a hard job, but with Fox getting Thursday night football, um, you know, I'm I'm at the site of the Thursday night game every week, and so basically for the 15 weeks where whether where the games are on either Fox or um, NFL Network, um, I'm gone six days a week. I get home one day a week, if that, and so oh, I have wow. my hectic times. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a job that I wouldn't trade for anything. Um, and and as people have said, oh my gosh, you may go from a Thursday night game back to LA and do college football on Saturday and NFL on Sunday. Oh, that must be difficult. And I go, I'm watching football games for God's <laughs> sakes. It's not that, uh, not that difficult. So I'm, I'm really lucky to be in this situation. Well, just to bring it back a little bit, um, how did you get into officiating? Cause I'm always interested. Like we know how coaches get into that, uh, the booth, we know how guys get into football. We know how like all that works. Officiating is a little bit different. Um, how did you get into officiating? Well, it was really interesting because I was going to Santa Clara at the time, university of Santa Clara. And, uh, my father was officiating and, um, on the college level, small college, and then a, a smaller major conference called the PCAA at the time, Pacific Coast, Pacific Coast Athletic Association, and um, I was at school at Santa Clara with basically no money. And um, a guy came to me and said, do you want to officiate football, Pop Warner football in uh, East Palo Alto? And I said, nope, no interest. <laughs> and he said, what do you mean no interest? I said, I have no interest. I don't want to officiate. And he said, why? It's a gr-. I said, because I don't want to. And um, he said, but your dad officiated. I said, well, maybe that's why I don't want to. I went to. Yeah many of his games and I'd see him get yelled at. And, uh, and so that might have soured me then much like it's souring people now when they think about getting involved in fishing. And then the guy threw the magic thing out there. He said, Hey, you know, Sundays, three games, $10 a game, 30 bucks cash for about uh, five and a half hours. And, and I really believe my response was, 
you know, I always was interested in officiating. So I did it for the 30 bucks. Um, mm-hmm. That's basically what it amounts to. And, or at least that was my intent when I went into it was to do it for the 30 bucks. But in reality, um, my first game that I ever did the pop Warner game in East Palo Alto within the first five minutes of the, of the first quarter, I knew it was for me. I mean, I, I knew it. I, the pressure of it, the, the parents that were yelling at me, little kids that, you know, at the time were 11 years old, trying to adjudicate fairness with them. Um, I, it just hit me. It hit me right away that, um, that this was for me. And, uh, you know, the fascinating part is, you know, gosh, I mean, since I was 21 years old, that's what I was at the time. I've been involved in officiating in some way, shape or form ever since then. Every day, every day I've been involved in it. So it's, it's really cool. If you weren't an official, what would you have been? What were you going to college for? Well, I went uh, to, to Santa Clara in, in business for a business degree in finance. And um, mm. I, I, you know, I, I mean, to be frank, I mean, I went to Santa Clara to play baseball. And I thought okay. I could play basketball, too, but I got overwhelmed in that sport. So I, I wasn't. I really wasn't necessarily a good student in high school and wasn't even a great student at um, Santa Clara. But I, you know, I mean, what would I have been involved in? I don't know. I mean, I went through some health issues early on, um, you know, in the early 70s. And and I ended up getting into a private car leasing business. I I don't know. I don't Hmm. don't know what I would have done. All I know is that um, when I found my passion, which officiating was it i was bound and determined to live out that passion and have it dominate my life and hopefully figure out a way that it could pay for itself and um and eventually um it did did you officiate different sports or have you always done football no i it was always football i did um one stint um in high school i did it for three years um uh, because i thought it was a great way to to learn, to, to teach officiating. Um, everything is so fast. I mean, I think it's the hardest sport of all of them to officiate. I might mm. say hockey's the most physical, um, mm. but I think basketball is the toughest with the number of decisions that you have to make in a closed environment where coaches are, you know, yelling at you, standing right next to you and fans are in the first row. Um, I always told officials when I was with the NFL, they said, um, you know, what can I do to become a better official? And they still ask me that now, young, young people. And I, my response has always been the same. Go work basketball for three years. And um, when mm-hmm. you do that, when you do that, when you work basketball for three years, when it comes to the majors of uh, baseball and basketball, um, baseball and football, baseball and football slow down. Yeah. It slows down in your eyes because basketball is so fast, so continuous. And, um, and, and I was glad I did the three years and I've always recommended that aspiring officials do that. Did you have more fun officiating college games or pro games? Oh, definitely college. Um, really? You know, I would think the opposite. Oh, I would be more nervous about the fans. I feel like they're more rabid and more likely to do something crazy to an official than an NFL fan. Well, NFL, the, the, the issue, at least to me was, is that, um, you back in my days now, let's recognize that I didn't get into the league until 1996. Um, mm-hmm. and it was a little bit different back then. 
you, you, I mean, like one of the, when you met with your crew, your college crew and your, at your clinic, you know, the first uh, question was, okay, what time are we going to show up for football Friday? And mm-hmm. that means showing up on a golf course and playing golf. <laughs> and, and, and you didn't have, um, all the observations and, uh, you know, the grading systems and all that stuff that, uh, that go on now. So it, it was, it was, it was fun. I mean, it was fun when you got to the NFL, it was a business. I mean, it was a business and certainly you were paid. That was the first level to where you could actually officiate football and make money. Um, and the benefits were good and all of that stuff. So it, it changed. There was more, um, more pressure, uh, more anxiety when you were waiting to get your grades from, from the game on Sunday. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I really wouldn't characterize it as fun. Um, yet on the other hand, I would characterize it as more rewarding because you were with the best athletes at the highest speed. And when you did things right, which, you know, you do most of the time, it was very rewarding. It's like you accomplished a, a dream that you could that you could work at the highest level. You could officiate football at the highest level. So that that was really cool. But to say it was more fun than college would be by far a misnomer. Was there one coach in the NFL in particular that uh, you got to know? pretty well was he just in your ear a lot was there one coach more than any other where you're like oh i've got him today no i you okay. know i mean first of all i was only on the field for a couple of years before yeah. i moved into the office and so i you know my my relationship with coaches goes far beyond my two years on the field and more mm. into my 12 years in the in the office and um and I, you know, I must say I grew to respect coaches more than as, as the head of officiating than I did as an actual official. I mean, I learned the pressure that's involved. Um, I, I learned some lessons in life. I learned that it was better to listen than to argue, uh, because especially with coaches, you were likely not to win the, the <laughs> argument, but yeah. you know, were there guys I like to talk to and that I didn't necessarily care to talk to? Sure. Um, mm-hmm. you know, that's probably human nature. Some, right. some were a little bit more difficult than others, but then some that you would never expect, you know, you look at, you look at Bill Cower and, and you, you think Bill Cower, there's a spitting guy, man, when he chews you out, man, the stuff comes flying out of his mouth. I love talking to him. He was, mm-hmm. he was great. He was, um, he was considerate. Um, he, he, he really, he really, um, he, it really was sincere. Um, Bill Parcells was another one. I mean, Bill Parcells, are you kidding me? One time he ripped me so bad in a game for something I didn't even do. I mean, and he absolutely ripped me. And uh, and then all of a sudden on the Monday, the game was Sunday, I get a call at home and he's apologizing. And he's he's embarrassed. He's apologizing and saying, you have, you have no right. You have absolutely no right to forgive me for the way that I talk to you. And he said, and I don't expect you to, uh, you know, to accept my apology, but I'm just embarrassed by the way he acted. And I remember this was in a voicemail. He left me. I remember the first thing I thought of, I must have him again in a couple of weeks um, <laughs> on the field. And, uh, and so I checked my schedule and I didn't. Um, and okay. that's, that's the kind of guy that, uh, that Parcells was. 
Um, this is an actual in-game question. Do you are you a bigger proponent of college pass interference or pro pass interference? Not even a question in my mind. Um, I I absolutely think that the college pass interference rule is so much better than the NFL mm. rule. For the obvious reason is it's the toughest call in the field to make, yet it carries the most penalty yardage. I mean, yeah. you're talking, I remember being in the league office, running the program, pass interference called 40-yard play. It's called <laughs> defensive pass interference. And then I look at it, and the call wasn't correct. And you got to tell the call, hey, hey, we missed it. Well, guess what? It's not like missing a five-yards offside penalty. You just missed a 40-yard um, pass interference penalty. Um, it's Everything's moving when it comes mm-hmm. to pass interference. The, the players are moving. The officials are moving. The ball is moving. There's a judgmental part of it. You know, was the contact that it significantly hinder the receiver's ability to make the catch? Was the pass catchable? It's the hardest penalty to call, yet it carries the most severe um, penalty yardage. And it puts the officials under incredible, um, incredible pressure. And, and I did try to get it changed. I mean, I, I would go to the competition committee every year and they, they would really respond to me by saying, Oh, well, no, we can't do that because we'll take away the deep vertical passing game because the, the defenders will tackle the officials. I mean, the, uh, receivers every time. And I go, I would say, do you not watch college football on right, Sunday, it's not happening, Saturday? Yeah. That doesn't happen. If you're close enough to get called for pass interference, you are trying to make the play. And um, and but I could never, um, I could never make any progress in that at all. But I, I think the college rule is so much better. So it doesn't sound like we're ever going to get the college rule in the NFL game. No, I don't think we will because the powers to be are, you know, I mean, everything. We're in a passing league now. We're in yeah. a, we're in a league. We're in a league that likes numbers in terms of offensive numbers. So are we going to get that? No. I mean, the state, the, the step that we're taking now to maybe ensure that the call is made a little bit consistently, a little bit more consistently, maybe helps. I'm inclined to think not, but, um, but so you're it, not, it doesn't sound like I you're a fan of reviewing pass interference calls. That's not into effect. Yeah. No, no, not, not under, so not under the way that is that it has been voted in now. I, I mean, I am a proponent for, you know, being able to correct what happened in the Saints Rams game, which happened at the end of the game with the game on the line and was very obvious that it was right. a foul. But this is like one play. And so what mm-hmm. do we do as a league? The same thing that we used to do when I was in charge. We'd overreact to one play. And um, I, I think there were more important issues that could have been addressed when it comes to replay, like player safety, which the league says they're more concerned about than anything else. You know, why not let replay get involved on some of the helmet-to-helmet shots that weren't called last year, like Alvin Kamara? I mean, it's that that new helmet rule is so hard for officials, and it would make sense to me, you know, to review something like that. But ultimately, you know, I, I felt going into the off season that having an eighth official, which which was called the sky judge in the AAF before it uh, folded shop, to have another official, an eighth official, who is in an enclosed booth and gets to look at a quick replay in real time and be able to fix it in real time without having to go to replay 
and focus on player safety and pass interference than only at the end of the game was a better option. But the league chose not really to pursue that, maybe because it wasn't their idea. I don't know. Um, but to me, it would have been a better solution than what they've arrived at now because we have opened a big old can of worms. And yeah. that play that we're talking about in New Orleans, easy. But there's going to yeah. be 50 yeah. other ones that we're going to scratch. Every one of those that we're going to scratch our head and go, wait a minute, what are we doing here? And offensive pass interference is going to be more of a story than defensive pass interference mm. with this rule. Why is that? Why are we going to get more offensive pass interference? Well, because it doesn't get called as much, and it happens uh-huh. It happens a lot more than it's called. And, you know, the thing is with interference, with pass interference, um, there are many things that don't get called because they don't have an effect on the play, but fouls. And so now we've got to take a look at replay and say, okay, are we going to use this criteria of, well, no effect, let's not call it, um, even though it is pass interference. And I don't think they're going to do that. So you're going to get you're going to get swing passes that go for 70 yards, and a smart coach who, if he's really smart, is going to hire an official, a recent ex-official, or maybe take one that's the end of his career, and he's going to be able to see that the slot receiver is blocking a yard and a half downfield before the pass gets touched by oh, the receiver. So place. Yeah. Sure. Pick plays and block it downfield. And, and, you know, uh, they're going to take away 80 yard scores. And, and, um, I, I think it's, I think it's, that's really going to end up to be the story. And then they're saying, hmm. well, it's got to be clear and obvious, um, in order for replay to get involved, would you explain to me what clear and obvious is? <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. clear and obvious to you might not be clear and obvious to me. And, Right. You know, if you say, well, this wasn't clear and obvious in real time, but then television plays it back and you see it's clearly passing interference, the fans are going to be up in arms, you know. Right. So uh, uh, the only good thing I see out of this rule is they got 64 games in the preseason to take a look at it. And if it doesn't mm-hmm. work, it won't be the first time that they've made adjustments after the um, preseason to make it, you know, a little better in the regular season. And just, I, I worry about the games going longer and just dragging stuff out more and just more replay. Well, you're right to worry about that. And you didn't work for Roger Goodell. I did. And mm-hmm. the one thing that Roger Goodell was adamant about was game time. He was always trying to shrink game time. And, uh, and this is one that it certainly looks like it could extend the game time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a... That's a legitimate comment, and um, you know the commish, who I agree with what that he has done in to pursue the player safety elements of the game. This one here, and remember, it's only a one-year rule, so it's just an experiment. So mm-hmm. it doesn't take 24 votes to get it out next year. It takes 24 votes to get it in, and um, you know I still like to think that they would agree to look at the the sky judge possibility. See, we fix things with band-aids. That's what we do. And I, Mm. I mean, I did it too. We fix things with band-aids. If you really want to improve officiating, then I think you have to involve technology more. You have to involve an eighth official who can correct things in real time. My God, you miss a huge face mask. A a face mask gets grabbed. The head gets twisted, but it Mm. happened in an area where nobody could see it. 
Then right. let the official, eighth official, just call down and say, hey, Vinny, Bill Vinovich, that was a face mask on Minnesota 23. Throw the flag, march off the penalty, let's go. He's an eighth mm-hmm. official. He's a member of that crew. You, you, could, you could really, to me, help officiating if you adopted that approach. Um, but, you know. I could see fans to put over that because it would be a late flag every time, right? Because there'd be a Would delay. you rather be late or would you rather get it right? I would rather get it right, but I think people in attendance, they're going to be like, wait, what just happened? And then you'll have the announcers, you'll have Buck and Aikman talking about, nope, there's a late, the eighth uh, official has made a note that uh, there was a face mask that we did not catch. And, and, and uh, I promise you, whether it's Buck and Aikman with me in the booth with them, the, the response will be, hey, they got it right and they didn't delay the game. They yeah. got it right in 15 seconds. They got it right because the, the, the eighth official got a quick look at it when he ran his video back and forth. And then it would become commonplace, just like all the rest of the stuff, just like instant replay. You know, it would, it would just become a part of the game. And I mean, I, I agree. It wouldn't look good, but you know, it's kind of like replay. It's pretty amazing. When replay first came in, it was like, well, who cares what was first called? If replay corrected it, the crew was deemed to have gotten it right. And I remember a game in Detroit where we had three reviews in Detroit on a Thanksgiving day game and all three were versed. The original calls on the field were wrong. And the next day you read, you read the paper, not a mention, not a mention of it. So, you know, ultimately I think it's better to get it right. Although maybe I'm losing my job if they get it right all the time, huh? I might, <laughs> I might not be, I might not be no, necessary you need the, after the, that. You need the ambiguity in this. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You need all that. Right. Um, is it true that holding happens on every play? Because I don't see, like, if you're watching the broadcast and, like, that's just, like, a common thing that people say. My dad says it all these yeah. people that watch these games growing up. It's like, they could call that in every play. Like, every fan gets upset at holding calls because they're like, oh, they, why do they call that here uh, when they can call it on every play? Because someone's holding on the offensive line at all times. Is that true, or do you think um, there is some validity to that uh, assessment? Well, it's not true. Um, okay. you know, hold, holding doesn't happen on every play. I mean, you get now these days, these blank, uh, blanker screens that are thrown on a one step drop. And, and, and obviously there's not even time to hold there. I mean, the rule also says that, you know, it must, it must restrict a player to getting to the ball or the runner or the passer. And, you know, a lot of times the hands do go outside, but it doesn't, it's technically by definition, it would say your, your, your hands are outside the frame of the body, but it does not, it doesn't restrict the defender enough to keep him from getting to the runner. So it, it doesn't happen on every play. That's a big misnomer. I mean, to think that, yeah, okay, let's call holding on a kneel down play at the end of a game. Wouldn't that be great? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it's yeah. uh it, it's there there are a lot of myths it's like the makeup call the makeup call is uh, is a myth people that uh, that was a makeup call what do you mean it's a makeup call I the guy that called like the first that. one the first the guy that called the first one well first of all he doesn't know he was wrong on the mm-hmm. on the first one and secondly does he want to make two mistakes yeah. two mistakes in a game you're out of the playoffs quite frankly i mean that's how that's how tough it is and you could find yourself you know, back working in your hometown and not in the NFL. So, you know, that's, a, that's, that's clearly a misnomer also. What's the hardest thing about uh, working on TV? 
you know, I didn't find anything hard about it, period. I, mm-hmm. I, once I got through the first day, I mean, the first day I was faced with the Calvin Johnson catch no catch in Detroit, Chicago oh, God. in yeah. 2010. And um, Fox at that time wasn't sure how I was going to work out. And neither was I. I didn't even, they, they weren't sure how they wanted to use me. And, uh, and then that play happened. It was only the second play I went on air on. And, uh, and, and I knew they would come to me. I was in a studio in LA and it was Tom Brenneman and, uh, and coach Billick, Brian Billick. And so this is obviously a huge play and they come to me and I I'm like, um, uh, whoa. I mean, I, this was such a tough one. And I kept, I kept trying to hedge my bet and saying, well, the rule says that if you're going to the ground, you got to hold on to the ball after you hit the ground, you know, and then they're, Brenneman and Billick are asking me different things and Gene Steratore is under the hood for what seemed like an eternity. And he was there for so long. And I tried to try to just talk about the rule. And, and finally it was Billick and said, well, what are they going to do? And, and so at that point I just said, well, I mean, not knowing what Gene Steratore was going to do. I said, uh-huh. I think they'll leave it as incomplete. And when Steratore finally came out and said, after reviewing the play, the ruling of incomplete pass stand, uh, once they got me up off the ground because I had pretty much fainted because um, I thought, oh, my God, if I was wrong in my first big play, I'd be probably fired. Um, but yeah. after that, um, you know, uh, it's interesting because all this technology that we get um, still gets reviewed by humans. And um and whether it's a replay official, uh, now whether it's Al Riveron or Russell Yurk in New York, or whether it's me or Sterator or John Perry now at ESPN or Blandino or McCauley and NBC, it, it's still judgment. It's still our judgment. And, and, you know, people see different things differently. So, um, you know, when they don't do when the officials don't do or when Al Riveron doesn't do what I predicted that they would do. It's interesting because social media jumps on my back and says, I'm wrong, even though, you know, I feel, and we all know that officials have made mistakes and so has the league office. That's been the nature of the beast. But, um, I don't, I don't find anything particularly difficult about it. Um, all right, last question. We'll wrap up here. Um, what is your game day routine with Buck and Aikman? That's a good question. My game day routine with Buck and Aikman is, is just basically to stay clear. I mean, their, their most intense focuses. I mean, they, they work so hard and I really appreciate that out of both of them. I mean, they work during the week hard. And, uh, and then they work during the weekend hard, the production meetings on Saturday and, um, and sometimes on Sunday morning. And then their last minute preparation, you know, goes on in the booths on Sunday. And they're, they're looking, they're looking at rosters and depth charts and, and, you know, and, um, you know, different things, tendencies from teams. So I basically let them go and and uh, and stay out of the way. Um, I have a producer, Roger Ruth, who's with me all the time, and um, and we kind of go into our corner and do a little bit of of our preparation, working with our uh, technology there, but um, not not m- 
much with them because I have actually access to them during the game. So when mm. they are when they are talking, even though I stand right next to Troy, um, I have access so I can actually talk right into their headset. And uh, so if there's something I think I can add without me going on air to, you know, to add it, I can say it right to them. And you know, with Troy. I love him, man. He he's like the first when we got this technology in where I could talk to him directly into his ear. I was like, I never said anything, and he said, "You didn't tell me anything." I said, "Well, you're in the middle of talking," and he goes, <laughs> "I don't care. Tell me anyways." He said, "Aren't people talking in your ear when you go on?" And I go, "Yeah, they are. They're telling you wrap it up." And he said, "Well, it's the same way with me. So just like, just like, go ahead." And uh, and, and Joe's the same way. So with that. I think we became more of a team and, um, and, and I, I really do, I really do look at us as a team and, um, and feel a part of that, of that crew. And, and, um, you know, and now that wherever they are, I am, um, I'm always with them. It's, um, it's really, it's really kind of fun. Well, that's awesome, and that's that's just really cool to hear. And this has been great, Mike. Thank you so much for giving so much giving me so much of your time tonight. I appreciate it. Um, good luck this fall. I'm excited for another year of football. We're only a couple months away now, so um, that's good. We're about to go into the dormant period of sports season, the toughest thing right. uh, for the next month right. and a half. Nothing, nothing really on. But enjoy right. um, the trout fishing and everything else in the Northwest right now. I, I appreciate it. Is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here? No, that's great, Chase. Thanks. Thank you, Mike. And that'll do it for today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast. I uh, just want to remind you guys, if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, I would really appreciate it if you could take a second and leave the show a five-star rating and a review. If uh, you're not an Apple Podcast listener, remember you can find the show on Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts, uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.